today's message isn't part of any series. Um, Typically, we take a single passage and seek to exposit it. However, for this morning, what I thought I'd do is look at actually three passages that have some similarities and seek to draw out a few principles for us that I am finding helpful providing perspective in challenging times. Because really, these are challenging times. I think that's something that we're all much more than we wish to be aware of for our nation, for many of us as families, for our church. There there seem to be tensions that permeate everything right now. As a society, it feels like all of life is being lived on edge right now, almost like the tension in a household when mom and dad fight. Even if they aren't actively yelling, there's this awareness that there is no peace. And even if you aren't personally in the fight, you can't can't escape it. It still permeates the whole household. And as a church, we need to be crying out to the God of peace. We need to be seeking Him, seeking to represent Him, seeking his perspective on what we are going through and how we as his people go through it. For us as a church, it seems like our momentum is totally wrecked at this point. We haven't all been able to meet together since March. Treasured events like mission trips and Renew that often help us grow closer together, head into what God has for us for the rest of the year, have been canceled. We have folks here that are still not back to work. All these things are very unsettling. It's a disorienting time. And this morning I want to look at three major disruptions in the life of God's people to see what God might be doing in our situation and circumstances that, by the way, just from the outset, are totally different. So I'm not looking at these as a one-to-one comparison. You'll see why hopefully very obviously once we get into them um, I'm not trying to say this is what we're going through and compare that way but I think there are lessons that we can learn because some of the the effects and the ways we walk through this can can feel familiar I think so the first is if you uh, have your Bibles or your phones and you want to turn you can turn to Leviticus chapter 9 And the setting here is Israel in the wilderness after they've been delivered from slavery in Egypt. God has shared with Moses how his people are to relate with him in covenant. He's establishing for the nation of Israel their way forward together. Because they've just come from 400 years where, well, really... After Joseph, and there was this season where they enjoyed some favor, but then the pharaohs and the people of Egypt forgot who Joseph was. And then here we have this people that are living in this foreign land and ultimately were put into bondage and slavery because they were a threat to the Egyptians. And it's easy for the people of Israel to forget who God was and what he was like brought questions into their minds and now they've been delivered and they've seen God again and again be faithful to them 
to show that he is with them and that he is for them. And so we see the establishment, the inauguration of the priesthood and the first sacrifices and this new system, this new way of relating to God have been made clear, have been passed from God to Moses. And now Moses is sharing it with the whole nation. And we come to the end of Leviticus chapter 9 where we read these words in verses 22 through 24. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted, fell on their faces. I mean, I mean, talk about a high point. What a celebration was going on. It's hard to fathom how radically life had changed in, in just a few short months and years. From bondage and slavery and no hope for the future. Wondering whether God was even real or whether he cared to miraculous deliverance with God demonstrating time after time. He was with them and He was for them. To see fire come from heaven, to consume these sacrifices, for God to put His stamp of approval on all that was going on. And then we come to chapter 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu the sons of Aaron each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So these two sons of Aaron who were ordained as priests, they see all that's going on. God's mark of approval. This is an exciting moment. And they decide we want to get in on some of what's going on. Verse 2 says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, or I will be set apart as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. This isn't about you. This isn't about your sons. This isn't about tricks that you're to perform. This is about me. And I am the one that's to be glorified. It says Aaron held his peace. And then in the next few verses, Aaron and his sons are essentially told that they're not allowed, at least publicly, to grieve right now. They, are, they have the anointing oil of the priesthood on them. So they, they aren't to, to come... As a mess, they aren't to be drinking liquor. They aren't to be doing these different things that, that might be associated with their grief because they are standing in a place of representing God as his priest. They are the intermediator between God and man at this time. And so they are not allowed to grieve in a public way. The rest of Israel can grieve, but you have been set apart to represent me 
And the way that you do that matters. We continue um, verse 10. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So this was something that the Lord spoke to Aaron. The way that you do this role that you've been given, this assignment that you have, it matters. Because this isn't just doing things the way you want to be doing them. This is representing me. You're standing in my place for the people. And so it's important how you do this. I mean, talk about a downer, a mood killer. Nadab and Abihu were, seems a bit too excited for this offering and seeing God consume the sacrifices with fire. They wanted in on the action. They made seems that they wanted a bit of attention for themselves. After all, they were priests too. They had a role in this, but they see, wow, what an amazing display. And this, wow, this is what we're part of. But they were doing it in a way that God had not authorized or called them to do. They're making up their own way of approaching God and representing God. And at the outset of the priesthood and the sacrificial system, God wasn't interested in allowing his way of relating with his people to get hijacked by other agendas. His priests were to mediate between God and man, and they did not have the prerogative to do that however they wished. Nadab and Abihu, they suffered these consequences for it. The second example, turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And the setting here is David has become king and he has begun his rule after Saul's death. And one of his chief objectives is to reunite the nation of Israel that's been divided because of you know, the civil war, this infighting, this chasing down David, this uh, unwise leadership of Saul. And, and so David is seeking to establish and, and reunite the nation. And they've just had a key victory where they defeated the Philistines. And so we, we begin reading in verse 1 that David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring the ark of our God to us for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to the Bohatham to bring the Ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And the parallel passage in, in uh, 2 Samuel says that David had with him over 30,000 men. This was a turning point for Israel in returning to worship Yahweh after Saul had neglected the Lord during his reign. It's another significant celebration marking repentance and a move in the right direction for the entire nation. 
verse 6 we read, And David and all Israel went up to Balah, that is the Kiriath-Jerim that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, Yahweh, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Musa and Ohio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. I mean, they were making some noise. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Musa put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Musa. And he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark and he died there before the Lord. Verse 11 says, And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Musa. And that place is called Perez Musa to this day. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. We can look at, at accounts like this and just what's going on? Isn't that a bit of an overreaction? It helps to know that Yusa was the Levite. It was his job to know the law. He should have been aware that the ark was never to have been pulled by an ox cart. It was supposed to be carried on poles by the Levites. It never should have been in danger of falling to the ground. What we see here it can seem like this innocent quick reaction it wasn't actually use of performing a spur of the moment good deed but he was disregarding the direct command of God regarding the treatment of the vessel that represented God's presence among them this wasn't just some relic something that it's just part of our history um, that we can treat this however we wish. Maybe we'll put it on a shelf. Oh, maybe, maybe by the fireplace looks good. Um, the ark represented God Himself. It's the place where He dwelled when He met with Moses and Aaron and with the high priest between the cherubim on the seat of the ark. It was worthy of the utmost reverence and respect because it was representing God's presence itself. Third example. Let's turn to the New Testament. In Acts chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 32 through the end of the chapter. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no 
one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What we see here, I mean, this is the goal, right? They were living the dream. At the start of the church, church began two chapters ago in Acts, Acts 2, where after Peter preached, we had 3,000 added that day to their number, and, and signs and wonders are happening as they are testifying about Jesus, and we see just the spirit of God's people was for this unity. They are one heart and soul sharing their possessions, not a need among them because they were looking out for one another. Different individuals were selling property and, and just laying it at the apostles' feet and saying, you do with this as you see fit. Where it needs to go, I entrust it to you. Barnabas selflessly sells some property to care for those in, in need. And, well, by this point, we know it's coming. Verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why have you not lied to man, but to God? When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to him, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Scripture can be so understated at times. And great fear came upon
on the whole church. I mean, I guess so. If this is what's happening in your meetings, again, everything just seems to be going great. You're enjoying all these blessings of God. You're giving testimony to His miraculous power. And then someone comes and gives a gift and they drop dead. And then a couple hours later, the wife comes in and agrees to the story and she drops dead. I mean, can you imagine giving this report to someone that wasn't at the meeting? Did you hear what happened Sunday? Yeah, yeah, God struck two people two people dead that brought a large offering. Everything was going so well. This is the picture of the church that we all long for. We, we look back and we say, this is what we want our experience to be. They had it. What gives? How, how do we make sense of this? How do we explain this? Someone not there asking, well, what, what did they do wrong? What was their offense? And, and all you can say is, well, Peter said that they lied. And again, isn't that where it gets really worrisome? Because uh, I've lied too. Well, then we better get our house in order, right? Because there seem to be some new rules in operation when we come together for our meetings. And Ananias and Sapphira, they saw what Barnabas had done. I'm sure they saw and heard the encouragement that he got from the apostles. Well, he got this really cool nickname, son of encouragement. How folks talked about him and his generosity. And they thought, we've got a little piece of land. We're not doing anything with that. We could sell it. We could save a little for ourselves. Maybe put on the addition we've been thinking about. Still have plenty to give to those in need. And if that is what they had done, they probably would have received similar encouragement and been well regarded. After all, it is generous to give to those in need. And it's really generous for someone to sell their property for the benefit of others. The problem isn't that they kept some back from themselves. Actually, Peter kind of highlights that. He was clear that the money was theirs to do with as they wished. The property was yours. It was totally under your control. It was your choice with what to do with this property. And even after it's sold, you had the prerogative to do with it as you wish. They were not under compulsion to give it all, let alone to give the entire portion. But the problem came in when they said they gave the whole amount while keeping some back so that they would look better. Like they were making a bigger sacrifice than what they actually were. And Peter said, you're not lying to us. It's not us you offended. You're trying to lie to God himself. You're trying to move up the chain, move up this ladder, you think, to get attention that you desire. You've done it deceitfully, but 
you're trying to pull the wool over God's eyes, and, and God knows the reality. Obviously, these passages have some similarities, beginning with people dying, or more precisely, being put to death by God as a direct consequence of their sinful actions. Now, we know that all death is the result of sin. Not necessarily for a particular sin, but that the original rule for the universe was established in the garden when God told man and woman not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and declared, for in the day you eat of it, you shall die. The consequences for sin, the wages of sin, haven't changed since. That was the original rule. The original declaration. The original consequence for sin. And God hasn't changed the rules since. The penalty is steep because the one who has been offended, well, he's like no other. He is the eternal king of creation, maker of heaven and earth, judge of all the universe, the only wise God. He made all that there is for his own purposes. He has every right to determine how it is his creation should function and how his creatures should behave. And he's not only the maker who makes the rules, but he's the righteous judge who is duty bound to enforce his good decrees. And if we really think about it, for him to not enforce what he decrees, it would leave him open to charges of injustice and even unrighteousness. Because if we see that he's decreed something to be a certain way, and then he doesn't deal with it when folks go away from that, well then... Is he really the righteous God that he says he is? Or is he just unjust and incapable of dealing with it? Yet, what we experience constantly is not this immediate justice. Now, God is, by his nature, obligated to dispense justice in order to vindicate his own name. For him to be seen and declared forever righteous, sin can't go unpunished. It can't be undealt with. Justice must come from God. But, mercy, which he is never obligated to dispense, and by its very definition of not receiving the punishment we do deserve, mercy is something we cannot earn, we cannot deserve. But our experience is that mercy is so common to our everyday lives that we can be, well, shocked, surprised, 
sometimes even offended when mercy is withheld and someone experiences justice instead. We can wonder what God's problem is and whether he's having a bad day when we read accounts like this where someone did something that to us doesn't seem like that big of a deal and they pay the price with their lives. You say, God, whoa, slow down. That's how familiar we grow with God's mercy and kindness and how unfamiliar we are with even the concept of his righteous justice. Instances like this where someone experienced immediate justice, we tend to be more than just a bit unnerved by. It can really bug us. It can seem extreme and and really in our hearts, I think we can even wrestle with it seems even ungodly, at least unlike the conception of God that we are comfortable with. The reality is these are not isolated aberrations. As we go through, these look a lot more like a pattern, especially if we stand back and see the timing of each of these occurring within a key transition in the life of God's people the establishment of the priesthood and the sacrificial system under the law, the reinstitution of Israel's worship of God under the leadership of God's chosen king, and the establishment of the church as the spiritual community of those purchased by Christ's own blood. Looking at this pattern at repeated key moments, I just want to make a couple observations and and see if any of this is helpful for us. Again, what we are experiencing are not this type of disruption, but we are experiencing disruption. We are experiencing things that are challenging for us. A couple of weeks ago in John 2, we saw Jesus cleansing the temple because he was jealous for his father's house. Because John has that account of him cleansing the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the other Gospels have it at the end, there's some dispute that it leads some to believe, well, either they have different orders in which they told things, or some would say, well, there are probably two different times where he did a similar thing in cleansing the temple and driving out the money changers and, and those that were selling things in the temple grounds. I think that's very possible because I think his intense jealousy for the temple of God, this meeting place of God and man, is, well, the same kind of thing that we see on display here in these other accounts. In a broad sense, I think all of these accounts are instances of God upending what's normal, of disrupting the status quo to clean cleanse the temple from what was infecting it, what was causing it to be sullied. Because cleansing temples is a recurring item on God's to-do list. It isn't something he just did once or twice during his earthly ministry. But when he looks at the temple, he wants it to be pure and right. He wants the focus to be on him and his glory. He's willing to take drastic measures 
to get our attention. Unless we forget, we are the temple of God, together indwelt by His Spirit. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, the, the physical locations, whether it was the mountains, you know, on which Moses met with God, or or the tent, or the ark, or a temple made of stone and overlaid with, with gold, they were all just placeholders. They were pointers to a better reality where we wouldn't just relate with God in one location, one person at a time, and for a limited time. They were pictures of what would what we would become as the dwelling place of God by His Spirit. Whether it's inside the air conditioning or out on the lawn, we are living stones, the building blocks of God's temple. That building is not God's temple. We, the people of God, are His temple. Dwelt by God Himself, the place where He not only meets with us, but dwells within us. And He is jealous, truly jealous, not for granite or gold, but for people. And so He sometimes takes shocking measures to get our attention, just like it was shocking for the people in Jesus' day to see the tables flipped over and to see Him form this cord and drive out animals. He got their attention in that moment. And he will sometimes take shocking measures to get his people's attention, to do a cleansing in our midst. And looking back at each of these examples, we see responses like grief, anger, fear, but we don't see apathy. We don't see people disinterested. God gets our attention when He disrupts our normal. The second thing I want us to see is that God builds His church His way for His purposes. God cares about how we come to Him. Priests that were offering unauthorized fire, that, that wasn't kosher because God was building toward a particular goal with His prescribed way of worship. They may not have understood why He was doing every detail, but God was making clear that they weren't allowed to come to God in any way that they wished. Now, with hindsight, we can see part of the purpose that God was doing this is because there is only one way to the Father. We don't get to choose our own adventure to get to God. He has made the way for us. And we either go His way or we don't get to the Father. 
touching the ark, even to keep it out of the mud, is unacceptable to God because it's to be revered as holy. Comfort and familiarity are God are not God's highest aims for our worship. God is not like us. He dwells in unapproachable light. Though any old cart will not do, and a casual hand stuck out to steady the representative pre presence of the Almighty, God's not okay with that. Using His community for our agendas and our reputation is not a character quality that He wants permeating His bride. He's a guide. He's a God that is jealous enough for His people, for His temple do some house cleaning in order to produce the community that relates with him and represents him the way he is worthy of. I don't know what God's doing in this season, but I do know that God is good. Scripture is clear. I do know that he has good ends to which he is bringing all things to completion. I do know what he is doing is by design. He has a plan. He is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I also know that he's wise, that his ways are not like our ways. They're as far above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. I also know that there is no power in heaven nor on earth that can thwart God's good and wise plan. Nothing in all of creation can keep him from doing exactly what he intends to do. So even when we don't understand all that he is doing, doesn't the combination of those factors mean that whatever God is doing, it is perfectly designed for his good, perfect purposes? We're living right now in, in odd and frustrating times. I believe we are under attack spiritually as the church of God. There are spiritual forces that would delight in tearing us apart to divide us over temporary issues like masks or politics or race. And like Job, we might one day see what was going on behind the scenes to tempt and to torment or like we were reminded from James last week, we might need to be reminded that what we are going through are tests of our faith. This is a testing, a proving of our faith that we need to give attention to where our hearts are directed. We can be sure that God knows the precise circumstances His church is going through right now that his people are going through right now, that your family is going through right now. And we can also be sure, because he is wise, 
because he is good, because he is strong enough to do whatever he intends. We can be sure that if there were better circumstances for him to accomplish his good purposes in your life, he would have you in those circumstances. But he has determined for us right now that these are the circumstances that are best to produce in us what he desires to bring about. And the reason that we can get frustrated or depressed is because well, we fail to recognize or let's just be honest, we just don't like many times the good aim that he is working towards. That we see in Romans 8 is conforming us to the likeness of his Son. That goal doesn't always line up with our goals and our wish lists. Which brings us to our next observation that God is more committed to our holiness than He is to any of our goals or metrics, to our preferences or perceived momentum, or even to making us feel safe. All of these examples were moments where significant transitions to good directions were taking place. There were serious celebrations that were right because people were excited to be part of what was going on. To see God at work. To see hearts of people changing and being reoriented towards God. And then, wham! Everything is stopped in its tracks. I think we're really taken off now and just plow into a brick wall. I mean, seriously, God seems to have no sense of timing with these things. Didn't he see how many people were on board, how excited they were, the celebrations that were taking place? They were excited about him. But God shows that he is most concerned for the Christ-likeness of His people, the purity of His bride. And God seems perfectly content to make us uncomfortable, to make us sad or angry or even afraid in order to help us see where we're missing the target, in order to draw us closer to Him and His perfect purposes and plans. God's committed to making us who He has created and redeemed us to be at the risk of offending us to get us there. And sometimes, maybe even perhaps through offending us to get us there. Maybe we need drastic measures at times to divert our eyes from our agendas to actually help us see where we're plotting our own course of it, instead of embracing His way. And I just want to put this out there as a challenge that if we struggle with that idea that, that He has the right to bring offense, to be so drastic, to mess up our world, 
maybe because we're not truly aware that God is so committed to your holiness that He sacrificed Himself to ensure it. He didn't just wreck our world with our plans. He wrecked His Son. If you really want to be offended at God's total commitment to your holiness, your Christ-likeness, there's only one legitimate place you can lodge a complaint, but it isn't at the disruption of your comfort or your plans. It's at the place He substituted Himself for you because that's the only place that the charge of injustice ultimately can potentially be leveled at God. For the righteous Son of God did not deserve the death that He died. All other death is the result of sin, our own sin. Since death is the punishment for sin, His death is the greatest act of injustice the universe has ever known. That is, if it had not been for His willingness to endure it, to go there for our sake. The truth is, since the wages of sin is death, all the demons in hell could not have crucified the sinless Son of God. But they didn't have to because He laid down His life of His own accord so that mercy would triumph over justice forever. And the reality is that death to our way of things brings God's way to life. After the death of Nadab and Abihu, do you think Aaron's other sons took their role lightly or tried showing off? No, they, they took on the mediatory role of priest for the people, making sacrifices on their behalf and giving them a more accurate picture of the ultimate high priest who one day would give himself, offer himself as our sacrifice. And David was angry when Yusa was killed, complaining about how the ark was not able to come to him but a few months later they carried the ark to Jerusalem the correct way and had a serious party they also had a built in reminder that they served the God enthroned upon the cherubim not the other way around this isn't a token that we take around to command God to do our bidding he is the one that is Lord of all the universe and we serve him and his purposes. And in Acts chapter 5, after Ananias and Sapphira were buried, we read this, the very next verses, 13 and 14. None of the rest dared join them. They didn't want to be in the meeting where people were getting killed. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. I mean, the first part's really understandable, right? If I'm aware that the church down there, people are dying in the meetings, I'm going to keep my distance. But what it produced in God's people 
was still so overwhelmingly attractive that people revered them and more than ever, it says, multitudes were added, both men and women. Friends, I, I don't claim to know all that God is doing in this season, but I'm convinced that lost momentum or the death of some of our agendas and dreams is not the same as defeat. And it should not lead us to despair. Instead, as we walk through uncertain times, let us look for, God, what are you trying to teach us? Where do you want my heart to be oriented differently towards you? How can I respond to you? How can I proclaim others to you? Help me. It's okay to say, Lord, I don't understand but I want to. I know because of what you have done that you are for me forever. So when I go through challenging circumstances in the moment, I don't want to discard everything I know to be true about how you have eternally brought me close to you. So help me as I struggle through uncertainty and questions and confusion to cling to You because You are worth it. And Lord, the things that I don't understand or I think I knew better, show me. Give me ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to understand. I might learn what You have for me and walk with You in a way that is pleasing. Because what we all need to remember that we who worship the resurrected King, death is never the end of the story. Let's pray and if the band could come. Father, thank You that You You have sent Your Son to declare forever You are for us. That we never need wonder whether You love us, whether You have our best interests at heart. Lord, help us whenever we question, whenever we wonder, to look to that place where You have made absolutely clear for all time Your goodness, Your wisdom, Your justice and your mercy. May we love you for it. Give you praise even when we can't, don't understand. Help us to be teachable. We can walk in a way that is pleasing to you. In your name we pray. Amen.